But this morning, we are in Genesis chapter 39. As we continue our journey through this book, we're in the section um, that deals, of course, with the life of Joseph. We're kind of subtitling that, God Meant Good. Now, I'm not sure during this COVID season what shows you've been binge-watching or absorbing. I, I, I can remember the very first show, I think, that really kind of grabbed me in that sort of way was 24, starring uh, Kiefer Sutherland as Jack Bauer. In each season, if you've watched 24, you know it's full of 24 episodes of an exactly an hour in length that are running in real time. And so it's super compelling. Every, every episode ends on a cliffhanger. Now understand, this was in the prehistoric dinosaur age of pre-streaming, right? So totally dependent upon those DVDs that came to us in the mail uh, for me to watch this season. But sometimes because it was so compelling and because I couldn't wait four or five days for the next DVD to come, I would go to Blockbuster at 11 p.m. without shame. I want you to know that, without shame. And in a lot of ways... That's what Moses has kind of done with us at the end of 37, chapter 37. He's left us hanging. Remember that he told this super compelling drama of the favored son, Joseph, kind of spoiled rich kid, daddy's favorite, brutally betrayed by his own brothers who stripped him naked, threw him in the pit, sold him into slavery, and here he is carted off by the Ishmaelites to... God knows where, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of the action, Moses, as we saw last week, goes back to the Ponderosa, goes back to Jacob's family, and it's kind of like one of these, and now back on the farm, okay? Here's Jacob's dysfunctional family, and we're like, but Moses, what happened? We want to know how Joseph did, how did he fare, and that's right where we are this morning in Genesis 39. Now, on one hand, let me say this. This is certainly the history, this story, of how it is that Joseph begins to be positioned in proximity to the greatest power in all of Egypt, which ultimately ends up being Pharaoh. And so, so on one hand, we're, we're getting the facts of the story, the information from Moses for how this all began to become about. However, we need to understand something, Four Oaks. This story is much more than simply bare facts. You see, on a, on a deeper, more fundamental theological level, Moses is wanting to show us how it is God who stands behind everything that is happening in Joseph's life. Everything, without exception. Standing, he is with him as he becomes a slave. As he is carted off to Egypt, as he is, finds favor in Potiphar's house, and he is made the head servant, how he is falsely accused, how he is thrown into prison, and how he has to kind of begin all over again. He had two steps forward and 12 steps back. And what I hope and pray that we will see this morning is just that as God was for Joseph, that in Christ that you will know God is for you. That just as God was working sovereignly in every aspect of Joseph's life, Joseph's life, in Christ you will be reminded God is sovereignly working in every aspect of yours. I hope and pray that you'll see that just as God was working in Joseph's family and Jacob's family, 
that in Christ you will know that he is working in his people, in his church, in this church family, in your family at home. And so two points this morning, and we're going to dive in, and here they are. Number one, God with us in providence, God with us in power, and how we learn these things from this story in the life of Joseph. Let's pray. Let's commit our time to the Lord. Lord Jesus, we are in desperate need of a fresh vision, a fresh reminder of your sovereign grace and how you stand behind everything that's happening in our lives, in our families, in our churches, in our country, and in the world. And so, Lord, bolster our faith as we come to your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's dive in. God with us in providence. In a remarkable stroke of, shall we say, good fortune, Joseph finds himself in Potiphar's house. Now, it doesn't tell us a ton about Potiphar. We're not exactly sure what his position is. Is he, in, is he the head of the imperial guard in Pharaoh's court? Is he a prominent member of the military? We're not totally sure, but we know that in terms of the, of the pecking order of the empire of Egypt, he is way, way up there. And not only has Joseph been sold to this man in his household, but he's found himself placed in a possession, in position of domestic servitude. And, and here's why that's significant. Oftentimes, slaves would be assigned, of course, work in the field, work out there, work of manual labor. And if that were to have been the case with Joseph, it is highly likely that he never would have come under Potiphar's notice. But instead, Joseph was put in Potiphar's house. He was given charge over small things and grew in those particular responsibilities, and Potiphar began to take notice. Now listen to how Moses describes this. He says that God caused all that he did, meaning Joseph, to succeed. It says Joseph found favor. Again, God made him succeed. And the theological umbrella that Moses situates all of this, and it's the central overriding truth that he wants to impart to us, is found four different times where Moses says the Lord was with Joseph. You see it in verse 2, verse 3, verse 21, and verse 22. Now, when Moses tells us that God was with Joseph, please understand it does mean in this context, in part, material blessing, material success. And that's a good reminder for us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That God chooses to dispense his goods, his goodness, his resources, the gifts of his creation as he sees fit. Paul tells us nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. All good things come from above, James tells us. And so clearly there is an aspect of material blessing and success and favor on the part of Joseph. But we have to understand that when it says the Lord is with Joseph, it means much, much more than mere material physical blessing. In essence, it means that God is near. That God was with Joseph by his abiding presence. This goes way beyond mere material wealth or success. And, and here's the reason we know this. 
Look at all the places in the text where it tells us that God was with Joseph. And he's with him without qualification in all these places. He's with him when Joseph is put on the trading block to be bought and sold as a slave. He's with Joseph when Joseph goes to Potiphar's house. God is with Joseph when he begins to ascend to a position of favor in the household. But he's also with Joseph when Joseph is trumped, when it, when is, when when he is thrown in jail on these false accusations and charges. He is with Joseph when Joseph is sent back to prison. And it is almost in a worse place than when where he began. And finally, he's with Joseph as Joseph once again begins to receive favor by what he does. But whatever is happening in this text, good or ill, this is important, Moses is confirming for us is unwavering in his assertion that God is with Jacob. It's not as if, and this is important for us as Americans to remember, it's not as if God's favor is lifted when bad things happen. Like that's a symbol of God frowning on Joseph. See, where prosperity theology fails, and, and what we mean by prosperity theology is this idea that if I'm living right, if I'm doing right, then God's going to bless me materially. God's going to bless me with riches. God's going to make me successful. God's going to give me favor. See, where prosperity theology fails is that it measures God's favor only in the physical, material realm. You know, I have a brother-in-law in Tennessee who practices real estate, and one of his fellow realtors has a slogan for her business that says, everything she touches turns to sold. And, and quite honestly, I really think that's clever, okay? Great marketing slogan, terrible theology, right? See, at its deepest level, what Moses is, is telling us is that God's face, his disposition is for Joseph. Everything that's happening in this story, in this text, is for his good, for God's glory. And the way that Moses designates this to us or points this out is that he uses the term the Lord four different times. And, and in the Hebrew, this is literally the word Yahweh. In Genesis 37 through 50, that word for God, Yahweh, is only used two other times. But in this story alone, four times. And Yahweh, of course, is the covenantal name of God. It's the name that, it's the, it's, by, it's the means or the name by which he revealed himself to Moses when Moses is like, who should I tell him sent me? And he says, tell them I am sent you. Tell them I am. I am that I am. This is the name of the covenant keeping God. The covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He, when he made the promise, I'm going to build your descendants, Abraham, into a mighty nation. I'm going to win the world through your descendants, Abraham, through a promised Messiah who's going to come and set things right that are broken in this world. I'm going to put you in a land. I'm going to raise up the seed. And see, this idea of Yahweh reflects God's commitment to not just being a global God, although he is that. God never ceases to be the global God, the transcendent God, the God above. But Yahweh in this context is meant to remind us that for Joseph, God is 
incredibly personal. See, this, when he says, I am Yahweh, and he's reminding Joseph of, of this, he's reminding Joseph that he is a personal God to his people. He is not distant and abstract. He's not like a watchmaker who's winding things up and letting them go. He's not like a sovereign puppet master um, who's far, far above his creation. In fact, he is intimately involved with every detail, good and bad, of Joseph's story. Which means that anything that happens to the people of God is for the good of the people of God. And let me tell you, folks, we need that fresh reminder, do we not, in this season. We need to be reminded that God is the covenant-keeping God. God has not gone anywhere. God is with us just as much now as he was five or six months ago. See, where we are tempted to see disorder and agendas and conspiracies and dark shadows. And, and even if all of those things are fundamentally true, that's not the most important thing that we can know about this season. The most important thing we can know about this season is not, in, in, in fact, anything about this season. It's about God. That God is working for our good to his glory in every aspect of everything that we see happening right now. This season, I know so, much, so many of us feel so compelled to want to escape. We want to leave it behind. We want to forget it's ever happened. But I think this text will remind us that this isn't a season to run from. It's a season to embrace and to say, God, what does it mean in the midst of this, this season to be obedient, to be faithful, to stay on mission, to, to, to lean into what you are doing this season. And as we're going to see as we continue through this story, that's exactly what Joseph does. This brings us to our second point. God is not just with us in his providence, although he is that, but he's with us in his power, in his personal presence. Now, interesting about this story, when we read it, many of us have heard it so many times it's just, it's sort of rote. It's sort of easy to think, well, I know it kind of turns against Joseph right there, but hang in there, Joseph. Pretty soon it's going to turn around for you. You need to remember something. When Joseph is in the middle of all the things that are unfolding, he does not have the view of the narrator. See, we have that great luxury. We have that blessing. We know if you've read to the end, spoiler alert, how this is going to end. Joseph doesn't know how this is going to turn out. All he knows is that he was yanked out of bed almost, stripped naked, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. He's 17 years old, doesn't know anybody, doesn't know the language. He's shoved into this, into this foreign house in this foreign land, doesn't know what's going to happen. All he can think about is, God, what do I do next? What, what, what does it mean to trust you right now? What does it mean to walk in faith not five years from now, not five days from now, but five minutes from now. And this is what we, this is, this is the heart of trust and faith we see in Joseph. What did he do when he get, when he got to Potiphar's house? See, as Americans, we're so used to having so many recourses to pursue if we don't like the way things are, right? 
there is no lawsuit to file. There is no petition to gather names for. There is no higher court to appeal to. There, there, is, there is no online Facebook group to gather and disseminate information. There, there's none of those things. He is alone and he's isolated, and he does something that I think we completely overlook here, that I think God uses in a really powerful way, is Joseph just simply started to work. He just went to work. He worked hard. He worked faithfully. He didn't sow seeds of dissension among all the other household slaves. He just served wholeheartedly. He obeyed out of a belief that while he did not know why all this was happening, and it was, of course, unjust on every single level, he had to trust that this is where God had him. This was God's station for him at this point in his life. And he was going to be obedient. He didn't know much. Because I find this incredibly encouraging. We don't know much this season. We, 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 we want to plan. We want to think ahead. We want to strategize. We want to maneuver. And I think for God's people, so often it just simply begins with saying, what is What's the next thing you would have us do, God? What, what does it mean to be obedient right here, right now, today? And that's where Joseph leans into because he is going to be, as we see here, faced with the supreme test of obedience from Potiphar's wife. Look at verse 6. The Hebrew says, now, jo- I mean, the English says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. What does the Hebrew literally say? Dude was built. Okay, honestly, that's what it says. He was attractive in the face. He was attractive in the body. He had the whole package. There is only one other time in all of the Old Testament that this phraseology is used about a person. That was in Genesis 29 about whom? Rachel, who was, you guessed it, Joseph's mother. And these, and sorry kids, these things grow on trees, right? They're, they're, her, it's mom and dad's fault if you don't look the way you want to look, right? But this is, this is the reality. Rachel was beautiful. Joseph was, if we can say this about a man, beautiful. And Potiphar's wife took notice. And there's probably a lot here we want to read into the story. We don't know. It's not even that important. But you can imagine how this happens, right? Potiphar is obviously a busy man. He is never around um, he is attending to the business of the empire. Potiphar's wife is at home. She is, she is, she is an unsatisfied wife. She, is, she has all of these people who are readily available to her. And it would have been, by the way, in that day and time, fornication, all those things, sexual immorality, rampant among the slave classes. It was endemic to being a slave. It was what was expected. And so she approaches him, and when she says lie with me, again, the Hebrew, uh, it's a little understated in the English. I mean, this is, this is to communicate just a base kind of lust. And it says not only does she do this once or twice, but it's, what does it say? Repeatedly, day after day. And finally, it seems that she concocted a scheme 
that, that, that Joseph, while being wise and trying to have all the boundaries you would think a young man should, should have at this point in his life, et cetera, et cetera, clearly she waited for that strategic moment where his duties confined him inside the house and no one was there, and she made her move. Now, what, we, what Joseph does next, I think, when it says that he rebuffs her and he flees, literally runs out of the room, I'm reminded of a story Steve Brown tells. Steve Brown um, used to be a pastor at Key Biscayne Presbyterian Church. He's got a radio voice. Um, he taught at RTS Seminary in Orlando, and he talks about when he was a pastor, he went on a pastoral visit once to visit a family, and the woman answered the door, and let me just say, she was dressed in a way where she was obviously trying to seduce him. It's much better when Steve Brown tells the story, all right? And taking one look at her, there's several things that he does not do, right? He does not say, hmm, I thought I was here for a pastoral visit. What, 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 what did you have in mind, okay? Or what's, what's heavy on your heart today? So tell me what's, no, no, there was none of that. But C. Brown says that he literally stopped where he was, turned around and sprinted across the front lawn, right? And that's what Joseph does here. And you have to wonder if this is the, the story that Paul has in mind when he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. So Timothy, flee youthful passions, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, some would look at this text and say, thus sort of encapsulates the main point and moral of the story. Joseph was faithful. Joseph was moral. Joseph was obedient. You be faithful. You be moral. You be obedient. But I think there's a more fundamental reality that Moses is wanting to communicate to us here that's really at the heart of why or what empowered Joseph in his obedience. In other words, what was the central dynamic? What was the, what was the decisive factor? What was the motivating thing? And this is super pertinent for us, right? As we're thinking about what is the dynamic of change that has to happen in our heart for us to be faithful and obedient, to live a life pleasing to God. And I think the text points us in several directions, okay? First, look at verse 9. It's very clear that one of the factors in Joseph's obedience is that he did not want to violate Potiphar's trust, right? And that's, and that's really important. Potiphar had entrusted his whole life up to the very point of the food he ate and his wife. Other than those things, Joseph had free reign. This was unprecedented for a slave, right? He had entrusted everything to Joseph. And certainly, Joseph at this point is thinking about how his sin was going to impact others. In America, we have this delusion to think that some of our sins are actually private and don't hurt anyone. That's a deception. There's no such thing as a private sin. Private sins hurt the soul, which hurt our relationships. Men, when you go online or women, when you go online and look at things that you know you don't need to be looking at, it's not a private sin. 
It impacts you. It impacts your marriage. It impacts your kids. It exploits the person on the other end of the video camera. There's no such thing as a private sin. And so Joseph was well in tune to that. He, he knew that this would impact other people in the house. So, so that's one thing the text points us to. A second is that you can also sense that Joseph's family, his loyalty, how he was raised, his tradition, all of this played an important part as well. Imagine now he's a thousand miles from home or what have you. He, he doesn't even know if he's ever going to see his family again, right? Very easy for him to take a what happens in Egypt stays in Egypt kind of thing. No one would know. No one's ever going to know. But the fact that he's remaining loyal to his covenant family, loyal to his covenant teaching, would certainly indicate that he has a, a sense, okay, that, that his life and his choices are bigger than himself, all right, that, he's, that other people are depending upon him. And I think that was part of his obedience. But let me say this. However much those things played into Joseph's decision to pursue obedience, how, however real they are, I don't think they were decisive. I don't think they were determinative. And here's why I say that. See, the human heart can find a way around all those things, right? The human heart has it a profound way of deceiving itself and rationalizing sin. People come up with all sorts of creative gymnastics in their life to get around the consequences of their choices. People can think about all sorts of ways to rationalize why they should be leaving the teaching of their church or their family and all those sorts of things. There, there's a there's hundred ways around those things. And the same thing with Joseph. But I think there's a decisive factor that's at the heart of this passage. It's at the heart of what it means to have God with us and what it means to walk in obedience with him. And look in verse 9, and I think, it, I think this, is we, this is the key verse. Here's where we find it. Joseph says, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Here we hear an echo of King David, right? King David's confronted with his sin. He's slept with Bathsheba. He's fathered an illegitimate child. He's murdered her husband. And when Nathan confronts him, what does David say? Against God and God alone have I sinned. Now, David does not mean that he did not sin against someone or that his sin does not have deep consequences for those that are around him. What, what he's pinpointing is that his fundamental breach by his disobedience is not between him and people on the horizontal level. It's between him and God. That he is walking before a holy God. And that because God is with him, before, because God is before his face, everything he does, everything we do, is done in light of his presence. But see, even as New Covenant, New Testament believers, it's even more profound than this. Because not only is God with us, but God is what? In us. God's presence through his Holy Spirit dwells in us. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, and we walk before his face. 
You see, God's presence is not just a sovereign power and force working in Joseph's circumstances by his providence, although it is every bit of that. But God's presence is also in and with Joseph as he lived in awe before God. A W E. You know, for those of you who have little kids who don't know yet that you're a wretched sinner just like they are, you're, those little children, there's a, it's a sweet stage, right, parents, where they hold you in awe. Temporary, but sweet. Where there is an, kind of an, almost an unconditional respect and fear. Where they hang on every word. There's, there's, you know, we're not saying there's not disobedience in the sin nature and all that, but there is such a sweet, naive level of trust that it underlies all their obedience. See, this is the nature here of what Moses is pointing to when he says God was with Joseph. And Joseph is saying, how could I do this thing against my God? See, trust underlies all obedience. And let, let me just break that down for you in a couple of areas. Number one. If you trust God with your finances and financial provision, you won't cheat on your taxes. If you trust God with your marriage, you won't be looking for an escape clause or the fine print that tells you how to hit the eject button. If you trust God's word that people are actually going to hell apart from Christ, you won't be silent about sharing your faith out of fear that you will lose a friendship. See, when we have an awe of God a trust in his goodness and his character, it fuels the heart of our obedience. Let me just say this. There is a place in the Christian life for examining your heart, for unpacking your heart, for being self-aware, for understanding why you do what we do. But understand something, that is a law of diminishing returns at some level. At some point, you can dig so deep into your heart all you find is wretchedness upon wretchedness. This is why Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can discern it? So just merely understanding why you sin or, what's, or, or your history that's gone into making you who you are, as important as that is, and it is important, it's not the decisive factor. See, the decisive factor is what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, where he says, as we gaze upon the glory of God, in other words, his presence, as we gain upon, gaze upon the glory and the presence of God, what does Paul say? We are then transformed, changed from one degree to another. Joseph is gazing at the glory of God. It is fueling his obedience and so, by God's grace, it will be for us. Back to the story for a second. We're almost done. Let's be honest. Though obedience often comes with a cost. We need the truth in advertising slogan. And we see this with Joseph. Seeing a chance to cover her humiliation, her rejection, because Joseph has sprinted across the courtyard. She grabs his outer garment. 
shows it to men, shows it to her husband, and she resorts to the worst kind of racial profiling and scapegoating that you can imagine, right? This Hebrew that you've brought in here, this slave. And imagine how difficult this must have been for Joseph. And oh, it makes obedience so hard, right? It make, obedience is so hard when you, are mis, when you are mischaracterized, when you are impugned, when you are maligned. How tempting would it have been at this point when, when, when she first raised the call, the false accusations for, for, for Joseph just to walk all of that obedience back? But he doesn't. It's costly. Potiphar comes in and it says he burns with anger. Now, there's a, a lot of debate in the commentaries about this. Who is Potiphar angry at? We just immediately assume Joseph, right? Because he's thrown into prison. But you have to know that it would have been highly unusual at this point for a slave to do this, what he's, Joseph is accused of, and for him not to be immediately summarily executed. Highly unusual. And the fact that Potiphar has him thrown into prison, and probably this is a separate compound on his grounds. Now, prison's prison, but nonetheless, that he's not executed. Potiphar is probably furious at his wife. He undoubtedly knows her character. He is furious at losing his best slave. All of it, from Joseph's perspective, though, grossly unfair because he's sent to prison nonetheless. Now, when people look at the life of Joseph, you can't help but notice that more, I think, than any other Old Testament character, his life is a picture or a type of what we see in the life and the person of Christ. And let me explain. See, Jesus reigning in heaven came down to earth just as Joseph came down to Egypt. Jesus assumed or became, theological complexities here, took on our nature in all of its brokenness and all of its humiliation. He set aside all the rights, prerogatives, and privileges of being God, and he became a man, a humble man. Now, there was a season where Jesus experienced immense popularity, right, in his ministry for two years. And Joseph experienced a measure of popularity and success. But we know that ultimately, just as Joseph was betrayed unjustly, Jesus was betrayed unjustly. And he is descended down. He is put on a cross for sins he did not commit, for crimes he did not commit, he is unjustly accused, just as Joseph is in this passage. But here is where there is one significant difference between Joseph and between Jesus. You see, when Jesus was nailed to that cross and lifted up as a sacrifice for our sins, to remedy the broken relationship we have with God, to, to shed his blood, to have the wrath of God, the punishment from sin poured out upon him. It says that God turned his face away. That Jesus was on the cross, and what did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But with Joseph, God never turned his face away. Which means when you and I are in Christ, 
When you and I trust and place our faith in him, God is unequivocally always for us. He is always with us. He never turns his back. He never turns his face away. He is with us just as much as when we ascend as when we descend. He never leaves us or forsakes us because of the gospel of grace poured out to those who trust in him. Christian, where do you need the eyes of faith to be reminded this season that God is with you in his providence? And as you're reminded that God is with you in his providence, you will be empowered by his grace to pursue obedience as one who walks before his face. Let's pray.